Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to be continuing in Galatians on uh, the section that we read in the scripture reading. Um, and I made another typo. We're actually going to be finishing that one last verse at the end of the chapter as well. Um, so we'll be going through verse, verse 26 um, with the lesson this morning. I want to give a bit of a longer introduction. We are in the section of Galatians where, in many ways, the rubber meets the road. Uh, the letter has involved a lot of principles, building principles. And I want to review some of the importance of these principles and what those principles have been for up to this point so that our, our applications can begin to be more rooted in the context of the letter. Um, this is not going to be an easy lesson. Uh, it's going to be, it's been for me, very convicting, and I hope that it can also be something that can be productively convicting for you as we go through this, this section of Galatians. Um, so just some things by introduction. I think it can be easy to underestimate what faith is, what all goes into faith, and how much there is to understand about faith, and the power of God that is at work in faith, how far faith can be taken, and the impact that faith is meant to have on our lives, how we're meant to be changed in our faith. Faith is both simple, right? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a pretty concise one-sentence definition for faith. And yet in Hebrews 11, it draws out how faith, more than being defined in a sentence, is more effectively seen, illustrated in people's lives. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Moses. So again, faith is so critical, and, and Galatians, I think, really challenges us to understand both what faith truly is and the value of how far faith is meant to be taken. And so much of faith is rooted in principles. And so I want to talk about just very quickly here the, the value of principles. Um, in teaching, something that I've heard other teachers struggle with and I've struggled with is how do we make, make like effective applications in lessons but I think we, we really need to be rooted in understanding beyond more direct life application how the Bible so often teaches in the form of principles. And understanding principles, if we can comprehend the principles at work in our relationship with God, that leads to greater, more permanent, self-discovered applications we learn to make for ourselves as we hear teaching, as we read the Bible, and as we invest ourselves Principles deal more often with attitude and have the power to change attitude, intention, understanding, comprehension. Paul has spent almost five entire chapters of this letter on principles. And the applications that he's going to make through the end of the letter depend on our understanding and grasping these principles in order, in order to have their rooted sense of value. So once we understand the principles that God wants us to comprehend and be rooted in, then we can work on making the proper applications that are not just momentary or like a flash in the pan, but they have greater soil within our hearts to be rooted and have greater permanence and greater form of application beyond just what I'm told to do right now. And with this idea of principle. Galatians can be a hard letter because it doesn't seem to deal with a problem that seems as relevant for us. These are Gentile Christians who are being taught by Jewish Christians while Jerusalem is still standing with the temple, with the altar, with the priesthood, 
And these Gentile Christians are being told in order to be approved to God, you have to be circumcised and also keep the law of Moses. And that's just not something that we seem to struggle with quite as much. But again, what this does, it draws out permanent principles that help us understand the nature of the obedience God is seeking with us toward him. And so I want to talk again by way of introduction, some principles with obedience that is not rooted in faith and obedience that is rooted in faith and rooted in grace. Because that ultimately is the problem at work in the letter is you have the Galatian Christians not necessarily being disobedient entirely. They're, they're trying to be obedient, but their obedience now involving the law of Moses has taken them in a direction removed from grace, whereas he's going to encourage here obedience rooted in grace. So, in principle, what does this letter teach us about obedience when it is not rooted in faith? When we, we want to obey, but it's more based on knowledge and religi- religious practice, more based on ourselves and our ability. Obedience not rooted in faith gives liberty to self, to pride, to greed, to worldly desire and worldly mindedness. If you look at verse 24, this is something we're going to be seeing in the lesson today. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Obedience that is not rooted in faith, it gives liberty to more malice and contempt for others, competitiveness with others, comparing ourselves with others. It limits diversity among God's people, maintains divisive boundaries. And that's something we're going to see again at the end of the letter. If you look, uh, if you look forward in verse 15 of chapter 6, 6.15, it'll be the third time that Paul through this letter has emphasized the importance of how faith gives God's grace opportunity to cultivate diversity among his people. There is neither circum- for, there, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Obedience that is not rooted in faith, it limits thankfulness. It limits praise that we're motivated to give to God. It limits the reach of the gospel and the power of the gospel both in our lives and the way that the gospel can work in the lives around us through us. It limits the value of sacrifice and limits the value of affliction and tribulation. That's something we're going to see in the lesson this morning. Obedience not rooted in faith gives liberty to complacency within our commitment to the gospel. It does not need to dig deep into a thoughtful consideration of the higher principles at work in our faith. Obedience that is not rooted in faith sees little value in digging deep into the higher principles that are at work in our faith. It sees little value in God's word besides being a book of right information and direct life application. Besides that, the Bible has little more value. Obedience rooted in faith and grace, rather, seeks to crucify self voluntarily, not because of obligation of outright demand or pressure from others, Obedience rooted in faith sees grace as a tool to crucify self. It seeks humility that is only possible in Christ. It seeks generosity at the expense of self. It has desires that are based in hope. We'll reflect on this with chapter 5, verse 5. It seeks spiritual mindedness, not worldly mindedness. It gives as much liberty as possible for compassion and mercy toward others cultivates diversity and destroys divisive qualities, gives overwhelming value to self-sacrifice and endurance through affliction, cultivates a continually deepening zeal for God, and takes great care to continuously consider the higher principles that make our faith work. 
It sees God's word not just as a tool for right living, but as our window into God's direct glory and as our fuel for faithful living. So, separate from that, I want to read now chapter 5, 13 through 15, and I want to give one more introductory uh, principle before we get into verse 16. So where we left off, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statements, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are consumed. You are not consumed by one another, rather. What is the value of our faith? Again, just to restate, the value of our faith isn't just that we gain the right knowledge or we do the right things. 1 Corinthians 13 deals heavily with these ideas. You know, it says, If I have the gift of prophecy and have all knowledge and know all mysteries, but have not love, I am nothing. The value of our faith is it gives us the greatest liberty for love, especially among brethren. I want to think about it this way. We've, we've been talking about visualizing, just understanding the freedom we have through the gospel through the Galatians, as that's been just a heavy emphasis throughout this letter. And I think it's important to illustrate this freedom. So last week I illustrated it this way. And for me, this has been very helpful. In love and in relationship, is there freedom in marriage? In love and relationship. And just like last week, everybody has said yes. But here's the thing. So me being married to my wife now, I don't have the freedoms I had when I was single. I don't have the time that I had. I don't have as much time for myself. In fact, I have very little time for myself or less opportunity to think about myself in comparison to before. And is it possible that in marriage, a spouse can begin to think my marriage is enslaving? What begins to happen when someone thinks that way? The relationship breaks apart. That's what's happening with the churches in Galatia, right? If we think about our relationship with God in the context of love and relationship, although our freedom does involve love, the sacrifice of self, less freedom for ourselves, if we love God, that is freedom. And that is the freedom we have in the gospel. If we don't love God, then when we're, when we're um, confronted, is the word I'm looking for, confronted with his commands, it looks like he's taking away my liberty. He's taking away my freedom. He's taking away what I want out of life. But that's only if we don't love God, right? The value of our faith is we have freedom for love if we love God and see freedom that way. So chapter 5, 16 through 26, if, if we understand these things, these applications can really challenge and change us, I think, in really critical ways. So let's look at verses 16 through 18 and consider what it means to walk by the Spirit here. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit uh, against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So one thing I want to bring out in verse 16 is the key to overcoming the flesh to just not do fleshly things. (laughs) So I think verse 16 is important in that, how do we overcome the flesh? And I think... We'll talk more about how this is true about the Spirit as well, but there's something all-encompassing about this, right? The issue isn't just that we have to stop sinful activity. There's something very holistic about this, just as the issue of the law is very holistic. Faith is very holistic. Walking by the Spirit is very holistic. 
To overcome the flesh, we don't just not do fleshly things. We walk by the Spirit. And so the main point of this section here, I just want to put into your mind that the flesh is overwhelmingly overcome, not by just denying the flesh, but by actively walking by the Spirit. So I think we need to have a little clarity with what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. And I do want to deviate from Galatians 5 for a moment, just to maybe help us all have a, a stronger anchoring point here for this. So turn back to Ezekiel 36. Um, this has been just an incredibly helpful anchoring point for me in what it means to be spirit-filled and to walk by the Spirit. And we'll get into a little bit more of this with John 15 and also some things in Galatians 5. But Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 through 27, this is a helpful few verses to kind of just keep in mind and maybe note, like write down, oftentimes as a reference when the Spirit is being talked about and maybe it seems a little ambiguous. Anyway, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, talking prophetically about the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart or give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk, how? In my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So there's something, again, very holistic about this. This involves a new heart, new desires, new thoughts, new priorities, a new heart, a new spirit. And this equips us in verse 27 to walk by God's will. It's also helped me in verse 27 to be careful, the New American Standard says, to be careful to observe his ordinances. Keep this in mind. And turn to John 15. And I think in John 15, Jesus is very nearly directly quoting and fulfilling the ideas, at least, in Ezekiel 36. Um, We're not going to see it in the text we're going to read, but ironically, in John 14 and John 16, Jesus is talking about sending the Spirit to equip us to walk in the truth, to know the truth, to walk in the truth. And look at John 15 here, verses 4 through 12. And again, this is giving some anchoring points with what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. With Ezekiel, it's to equip us to walk in his ways. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch as a branch, and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So would you say that of all people, Jesus walked by the Spirit and that Jesus was Spirit-filled? I would say of all people, Jesus was the model of what it means to walk by the Spirit. And yet, look at verse 10. 
What did that look like? Like if Jesus were to say that in its most practical, most understandable terms, and all the ambiguity is taken away. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So I want to be careful not to overemphasize one side of this, right? I think the way we walk by the Spirit is, very simply, we hear God's will as expressed through Christ, and we do that will. What he says, we obey it, and therefore we are walking by the Spirit. But so much of it is about abiding in his love. This isn't like the law of Moses where we're just doing things and doing it with our self-dependent attitude. But rather, Jesus' instructions, they compel us to depend more on him. You know, I was talking with someone in a study one time where we, we were talking about the importance of obedience, and as happens very often, he says, well, we don't want to be Pharisees, right? You know, so we don't want to emphasize obedience and, and become Pharisees and just, you know, religiously arrogant. And I took him to Romans 12. And we read Romans 12 where it says, show preference to one another in honor and outdo one another in serving each other. And I asked, if you really do that, is that going to make you arrogant or more humble and more dependent on God? And he said, well, I mean, if you do that, it's going to make you more humble. I said, exactly. Arrogance is not a sign of obedience. It is a sign of disobedience. Because obedience that comes from Christ pushes you to be more rooted in faith and to depend more on grace. Obedience leads us in the way of the spirit and of humility, right? So this this involves loving God, knowing God's love, depending on that love, comprehending that love. And if we understand that degree of grace, it compels us to a very specific quality of obedience that cultivates a specific quality of a person that Galatians is talking about. Going back to Galatians 5, I want you to notice verse 17. And I just want to clarify one more thing here, is that the spirit is not my feelings and emotions. This is something that, okay, I'm not throwing Eve under the bus here. She's a very emotional person. And we've had a lot of conversations about her struggles and some of the anxieties that she has emotionally. And she's told me that it's been very helpful to know that the spirit is not her emotions. And when I talk to people in the world, oftentimes when we're studying, if I'm studying with someone who's not a Christian and may not understand the truth appropriately, they talk about their feelings as if that is God's guidance to them. You know, they have thoughts and feelings and sensations, and that's being led by the Spirit. Look at verse 17 again. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. The Spirit is not our feelings. It is not our emotions. The feelings of the flesh don't direct me to the way of God, and they don't commend me to the will of God as it's expressed in Christ. And so to be led by the Spirit involves seeing the value of striving to do the will of Christ despite how I feel. That is the cross. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Where were Jesus' personal feelings leading him? When we get kind of a window into how Jesus thought about the situation. Do you remember he said, Father, if there's any other way, you know, if there's any other way, but your will be done. And so Jesus brought his feelings into control to rather, in a sense, be led by the Spirit. The will of God was the cross. Jesus denied his feelings as strong as they were to do the will of God. This, this is the cross. And so oftentimes it can feel like a kind of hypocrisy to not act in consistency with my feelings. 
But rather, it can actually be the opposite, that it is truer to faith to serve God more on the basis of who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised, rather than just how I feel about things. Because who God is, and what he's done, and what he's promised, is infinitely greater than how I might feel about something, right? And so to be led by the Spirit oftentimes involves crucifying the flesh, as we'll get to in verse 24, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. What this means is walking by the Spirit will make the flesh uncomfortable. And I want to just illustrate this. When somebody has oftentimes been critically injured, they have to go to physical therapy, or if they've had a stroke or something like that. And I knew someone who had a stroke, and functions of their body were no longer working that were required to do what they could do before. And what they were doing before was extremely important for them. Um, He had to go to physical therapy, and it was extremely painful. But through that pain is their freedom. There's freedom in pain, depending on the context. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Doing God's will is painful because God is transforming us into an image that we are looking forward to in heaven, something not yet realized, right? So if we kind of see it like physical therapy, where yes, it's painful to do God's will, I've got to deny myself to do God's will, but why? Jason reflected on something uh, like a week or two ago about physical therapists, nurses. He said they're not afraid to hurt you. (laughs) But why aren't they afraid to hurt you? Why are they willing to hurt you? Even when you whine and you say stop, and they just keep moving that part of your body, And sometimes grown men cry in physical therapy. But again, why are they putting them through these things? Because there's freedom on the other side. Because they want a function that is going to give them more freedom. They want to be able to do things, right? So if we want to do the will of God, the reality is we have to fight for it. And I think this is an important thing that Paul is commending to the Galatians is they have not been fighting for the relationship they have with God. Therefore, the false teachers have had the freedom to come in and teach things that are more rooted in arrogance and worldliness. And so the issue isn't just the law of Moses and what that is and what that represents. It's the attitude of the people, right? We fight to protect and maintain and cultivate relationships we value. There's someone I know, it's not someone here, their marriage was recently in jeopardy. It was a man who found out his wife had been forming a very close relationship with another man And that relationship had escalated to the point where it had become very emotional, right? It hadn't escalated to anything physical or anything sexual, but when they dealt with this, their way of dealing with it was not to give up on their marriage, but to fight for the relationship. How did they do that? They committed to investing more in one another, committing to spending more time together, sacrificing time that they would spend on other, other things to be together, to talk together, to think about each other, to listen to each other. That's what we need to do with our relationship with God. You know, we'll do that for our spouses and won't do that with God. So what Paul's telling the Galatians, I think through them to us as well, if we value this relationship, we will fight for that relationship, right? So more specifically, what does that look like? 19 through 23. It's probably the more famous section of Galatians. I'm not going to do a sermon series on the different qualities here. And so I hope that just talking about it briefly um, will commend some main points. 19 through 23. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So just some brief things here about these qualities. In verse 19 through 21, I think we can kind of get the idea that the deeds of the flesh are natural. They're perverted, as in twisting things or objectifying people. Think about immorality and why, why would that be called perverted? It's twisting something, twisting a person into being something they're not meant to be and should not be. Uh, they should not be an object for my own gratification, right? It's self-pleasing. It's about my pleasure. And I think this is oftentimes where outbursts of anger and strife and, and jealousy comes from. It's competitive. It's looking at others and thinking about others in a competitive way and not in a spiritually centered, servant-based way. And it's divisive. So again, you kind of look at how many of these things involve relationships, right? Enmities, which would be tension in relationships, strife, jealousy with people, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. So many of these things end up involving the breaking down of relationship. But I want you to think about how holistic this is again. These are the deeds of the flesh. Do they not share the same root? So you think about how abhorrent immorality or idolatry and sorcery are. And yet within this same list is outbursts of anger. And this is something that I struggle with. And so I think something to note about this, it's not that we'll never see a deed of the flesh in our lives or something like that. The fact that they are evident isn't just to say like, yeah, you can see how bad these things are. But it's that we ought to notice these things in ourselves. It should deeply humble us when they manifest themselves. And the Galatians had not been doing that. If they had been properly examining and regulating the standard of the Spirit in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, they would have been humbled by the manifestation of these qualities in their local churches. But because they had not had the fortitude, the courage, the faith, the sense, the boldness to confront these things, they were changing the culture of the congregations completely, right? So the fact that they are evident is to say we ought to have the sense to notice these things when they manifest in our lives, to be convicted and deeply humbled and to have no tolerance for it, to continue or bear any fruit, right? And I do want you to notice verse 21. More and more I appreciate these statements Paul makes, not just that he's bringing it up anew, but that he had forewarned them and he's forewarning them again not that, that this is just a sin and just, you know, be careful. He says, if this is something you'll practice unrepentantly, if you're not going to have any sense of self-regulation with this, then getting into the kingdom is obviously not a priority for you because it is a guarantee those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? And so we need to be very serious-minded about regulating ourselves with these things. And then with the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 22. So, 
I hear it pointed out so much there's no S on fruits. And I hear it so much that I'm like, does anybody not notice that anymore? I mean, like, everybody seems to point that out. It's, it's fruit, not fruits. And I think the idea is it's not just that we need to, like, study these specifically specific qualities, which we should, but it's that as we walk by the Spirit, these are the things that are naturally born out of that. As in, if these are not thriving in your life or my life, if these are not qualities that are growing and are very evident, it may be that I'm not at all walking by the Spirit. But rather, as we started with, my obedience may be more an obedience rooted in the flesh. Even if I go to church, even if I participate in religious activity, this is what it looks like to bear fruit by walking by the Spirit, right? And what do you think, what do these uniquely equip us for? I want to talk about just a couple of these qualities and what they lead to, um, what it looks like. If you think about something like gentleness, what does gentleness mean? And not just in like a, a worldly way where people in the world can you know, muster up some gentleness in their relationships, but in really in a Christ-centered way. Gentleness is to be trampled on and to be silent in the process. Gentleness is confronting a problem when that's needed and yet seeking not to inflict any unnecessary injury. I mean, if you look back, back at verse 12, I wish that those who are troubling you would even emasculate themselves. Was Paul being gentle when he said that? When he said those who distort the gospel of Christ will be accursed, was he being gentle? I would argue he was. That Paul is conveying a severity, but it's not inflicting any unnecessary injury. It is necessary to bring these things up for the sake of healing. Can a surgeon be gentle? Even if they're doing a procedure that involves blood and involves pain, involves a lot of recovery time, can a surgeon still in the process of cutting someone open and removing things inside of a person's body, can they still be gentle? Yes, because they're not seeking to inflict any unnecessary injury, even if it is necessary with what needs to be removed or taken care of, right? So what does something like that equip us for? Something like gentleness. It equips us for loving our brethren. All of these things are reflections of the characteristics of Jesus. And what did all of these things look like in Jesus' life? What did it equip him to do and to invest in? It uniquely equipped him to deeply invest in the most difficult kind of people. We had a Bible class on Wednesday night about self-control, and, and we talked about how biblical self-control equips us to love people closer than just at arm's length. And I think that's what we see in this list as well. That because the Galatians were not obeying God in a way rooted in faith, there was a breakdown of relationship and unity. And if they get back to being more spirit-minded and walking by the Spirit, then chapter 6, we can work on bearing each other's burdens, helping and serving each other and doing good to one another, but not without this foundation, right? So it uniquely equips us for love and service. So again, if I don't see that as freedom, then the purpose of all these qualities collapses. But if I see the cross as a symbol of freedom, to love and serve with a greater capacity than possible without it, this then is freedom. And that leads us to verse 23, that there's no limit to the degree that these qualities can grow. So it's not just saying that, you know, there's no, no forbiddance on these things or regulation. 
It's that you have total freedom to practice these things and invest in them, and there, there's no ceiling. How far can love be taken? That's up to you. How far can gentleness be taken? That's up to your faith. It just depends on your zeal towards it, your desire for it. How close do you want to be with Jesus, really? If you really want to be close to Jesus, these qualities have no ceiling, no limit, no regulation. We are given the total freedom to invest ourselves headlong in these things. And the focal point of that emphasis in verse 13 is through love, serve one another. Let's finish thinking about 24 through 26. Kind of power that the cross has to cultivate these things. And I think what it means to walk by the Spirit is intricately intertwined with the cross. Now those who belong to Jesus, to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The cross has an exclusive power to transform our ambitions from seeking a comfortable life to a crucified life. I'm not going to be able to balance these points very well. Um, All I can do is trust that in hearing these things, maybe you can filter out some of the things I'm not going to balance very well. Because the, the way that the cross leads us here isn't like the way that your employer employs you or pushes you to work harder The cross represents so much about the incredible, unfathomable grace. And what we'll get to is there is a point where grace creates a sense of duty in its response and how you respond to it or even an obligation. And so the cross has a power to transform us in a way that no other philosophy or teaching or discipline can possibly accomplish. And I want you to remember just this is... Paul, through this, is coming back to basic principles of Jesus' teaching. Turn, turn back to Matthew 16. You know, because so much of this, again, with what we've talked about with these principles, faith is not just, I know the information. I believe the information. I, I agree with it. It is, what form is that taking in your life? Because the reality of faith is in how it's manifesting in me and what it looks like in me. Matthew 16, 24 through, 20, or, uh, yeah, 24 through 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, so this, it shouldn't be surprising or strange for Paul to make this point that we've got to go back to the cross we've got to think about how the cross is not just something Jesus endured, but that's meant to be a reality for us. It's meant to redefine everything about who we are and and change our thoughts and our attitude, our desires, our ambitions, our investments, our relationships. When Jesus talked about discipleship, he focused, even before his death, on taking up the cross and losing our lives for his sake so that we could save our lives rather than preserve them. So going back to Galatians chapter 5. If we truly grasp grace then, it compels us into a deeper sense of duty. I mean, again, this is going to be difficult to balance, but I want to illustrate this with 
it's going to take a little bit to explain this illustration, um, and then think about some other examples. But if if anyone's seen the show Hoarders, you'll maybe grasp this a little bit more. But Hoarders is a TV show where there's people whose lives have been completely broken by hoarding. They have so many possessions and so many things around their house, it's dangerous. Usually the house is in a condemned state. Usually there's feces on the ground and rodents and just a lot of bad things for their own health. And usually it's broken the relationships they could have with all of the people who love them. And usually it's a friend or a relative who wants a relationship. And the relationship is broken. It can't exist because of this. And the show is contacted because somebody loves this person and sees they need help. Well, they send a therapist to help them mentally. They send a work crew to take care of the house. And usually by the end of an episode, a therapist has relentlessly worked with the person so that they're willing to let go and let them take away things. And the crew has cleaned the house. And what happens at the end, you know how the person who had been hoarding usually responds? They break down crying. They break down crying because of the grace that's been extended to them. Not something they've done, not something they initiated, something done out of pure grace and love towards them. After the show, there's always a follow-up. A few months later, we checked with them and what happened? Do you know what happens very often? They went right back to hoarding again. And you know why that's bothersome? Because that grace, as great as it was, it came with a sense of duty. Live worthy of what's been done. Don't, don't go back to the enslavement that broke all of these relationships that was ruining your life and just enslaving you mentally and emotionally. Don't go back. And that's what the cross is for us. It compels us to duty if we understand the principles of what God has really done for us by liberating us through the death of Jesus Christ. If we really understand that, it itself, again, not, not like a boss working over you, you know, commanding you, pressuring you, but through grace, it compels us to a deeper sense of duty. A couple of relationships that I have that have really impacted me. There's a brother I know whose father was an elder, and to my knowledge, he's since passed away. But he's reflecting on his father working as an elder with a local church and something his father would frequently pray. His father would frequently pray, Lord, wear us out in your service. And he wasn't saying that as, again, a work employer. He wasn't trying to wring the Christians in the congregation for as much as they're worth. But he understood as a mature elder the grace we've received is so great, there is a sense of duty. And so he reflected on himself how his father, who was that elder, had such a sense of duty. And not in a worldly way, again, not, not any of those things, but based in grace. Another example, a brother um, that I know has mentioned that he frequently prays, and, and his life reflects this prayer. His prayer that he says he's prayed very often Lord, make me a bridge for you to reach others and help me to be okay being stepped on along the way. Make me a bridge for you to reach others and help me to be okay to be stepped on along the way. Only possible through grace 
when grace compels its own unique sense of duty. There is a sense of duty when we recognize what God has done. We really understand the principles of the freedom we have through the gospel. That is the result. And I I do want to say that if we don't get this, we don't we don't get the gospel. Because the gospel is not just freedom from guilt. It's not just, I'm glad God forgave me so I can live a moral enough life to get by until I go to heaven. If we don't get this, this, on the most fundamental level, we've missed it. So again, the glory of the cross is not about what we know. It's not about religious practice. As important as those things are, it's important to know the right information, to believe it. It's important that we do things like assembling and have correct doctrine in what we practice. Those things are vital. But the context for those things is it's meant to equip us to greater love. And so the glory of the cross is in the way we reflect it in our lives. The cross is not just something that happened long ago. It's meant to change everything about who we are. Remember chapter 2, verse 20. Paul wasn't just making a statement to show off his commitment. It was a model. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the gospel. And that is the reality of the cross. God help us to apply these things. I know it's very challenging, but I just encourage you, consider these things deeply. The principles, the application, all of these things are just so critical for everything about who we are and the freedom we have in our identity with Christ. If you're here this morning and there's anything we can do to help you in your relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.